Good morning, everyone. We are in Hebrews chapter 6, and I have both been longing for this message as well as a little uneasy. And so I need to ask your opinion on something. Are you the type of person that loves to just tear that Band-Aid off, just get over it in, in a second, or do you like the prolonged grabbing of hair and slowly just moving that hair? Do you, do you, are, you, are you a fast tear-it-offer? Okay. Are you a slow and steady tear-it-offer? You know, there's really no right or wrong answer, but I'm going to actually do both for you this morning, and I'm going to start with the tear-off the Band-Aid from this text. Not everyone who claims that they are a believer are saved. Even if you have examples of saving works in your life, it is no guarantee that you are saved just simply because you do things for the Christian life. And therefore, you may be surprised one day upon death that you may not be enjoying the fruits of heaven, but indeed you are in hell. At the same time, if you are indeed saved and God has reached into your life, changed you, and you are regenerate, and you do have saving faith, and that is exampled in both your attitudes, your actions, and your relationship with God, you cannot lose your salvation. God will not take it away. He will not disinvest you. Once you are adopted into his family, it is forever and eternal. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. He holds you tightly because you are not there because of your own acts or your own works or your own faith. You are there because it's a gift that God extends to you. And therefore, if you are saved, you are saved indeed to the fullest and you will not lose your salvation. There, I ripped off the Band-Aid. Now we're going to take some time and we're going to pull it off as we look at uh, Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4, we see the author of Hebrews trying to communicate to us something of incredible importance and something that is dangerously necessary to address. And the verses are not there to scare you. They're not there to create anxiety, fear, worry, and doubt. They are there to create assurance of salvation and to show you persevering in the faith is what God has established for his children. There is warning. There is some uncertainty on what this all means. And remember back a couple weeks I talked about sometimes there's hard passages and easy passages in Scripture. This is one that's a little bit more on the difficult side of things. So we're going to take our time looking through these verses. The key to understanding verse 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 is to actually look at the pronouns found in those verses. If we look back at verse 1, the author of Hebrews immediately says, therefore let us leave the elementary things, grow up, be mature, let us. He's including himself in that dialogue and in verse 3, he says, and we will do this if God permits. So the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 6, as well as the rest of Hebrews, the author is identifying with the people, saying, hey, we're in this together. It's us, it's we. Once he gets to verse 4, 5, 6, and 7, the pronouns change to those, them, they. 
So he's not talking about us. He's talking about a different type of person, the type of person that believes since they act like a Christian, since they do Christianized things, that they are safe and secure in the Father's arm regardless of the relationship they have with him. And of course, that was a huge danger, not just for the Jews in the first century, but for everyone thinking that my obedience and my good works and my outside expressions of Christianity somehow give us merit before God. And if I stop doing them, I'm in trouble before God. Our relationship with God is not based on the outside, outward expressions of faith or obedience or attendance or tithing or volunteering or signing up or even giving a homeless person a meal. It's based in a relationship with Jesus Christ that the Father establishes through faith. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that that faith itself is not even yours. It's a gift of God. Always by grace, unmerited, undeserved love and favor from God. But people can be misled They can be hyped up into an emotional acceptance that Jesus Christ is their Savior, and they can fall into the trap that legal obedience makes someone holy, and it doesn't. So the author clearly, clearly tells us that there are some people that fall into that trap, and it's for those people that this warning should indeed be a warning And it should indeed be life-changing. And it should, in a very holy way, scare you to death if you fall into the camp of those, them, and they. And not us, we, and your. You see, in 1 John 5, 13, the apostle John tells us that at the end of that epistle that he wrote, that he wrote these things, and some of them are hard to accept. And he says, I write these things to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you may know you have eternal life, that you may have certainty and assurance that God is your Savior, and nothing can change that. He wants you to know if you've claimed Christ your own and he has changed your heart and you are now born again. That nothing, nothing can get in the way of that. Even your own doubt. Even your own sin. Even your own failings. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. But that promise of nothing can separate you from the love of God is for his children alone. Only his children. And what the author of Hebrews does in verse 5, 6, 7, and 8 is give you a little glimpse of what it is like to be that person. Oh, well, this will make a lot more sense when I tell you what that means. Does everybody remember vaguely the story of the seed and the sower? Where the sower goes out and casts seed upon rocky ground, upon ground that has thistles and thorns in it, upon the path, and then upon good soil. 
Two of those people, well, one of those people automatically just rejects God. Jesus says that's the meaning of it when it falls upon a path. Nothing happens. They just automatically reject God, deny that he even exists, and deny that he is a God of goodness and truth. Then the two other soils are really, really scary to be. Falling upon the rocky soil, there's growth. There's germination. There's excitement about God. There's there's something there. But then something comes along and it just dies out. But if you ask them within that first week or month or year, hey, are you excited about God? And they're like, yes, I am. I love God. I love God. I love God. I do this, 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 and this, and this. And then weeks and months and years go by and they just fizzle out. There's no real life then that seed that fell upon the thorny soil. It grows up, and all of a sudden, all the worries of this world chokes it out. Yet, for a moment, they had excitement about God. They loved Jesus. They loved singing the songs. They prayed. They worshiped. They read God's word. They volunteered. They tithed. They did everything a Christian does. But life happened. And when life came along, it choked that growth to zero. Are you one of those two soils? Where right now, today, you have an excitement for God, and maybe you've seen it for a couple weeks, a couple months, a couple years, but you're excited because you see stuff happening in your life and not the relationship with God growing. These verses in Hebrews chapter 6 are then for you. And I pray that they strike a chord with you I pray that they burrow deep in your heart and in your soul so that you can't get out of the uncomfortable feeling that these verses bring. Because in this uncomfortable message of not saved, although I think I am, can come a great realization where you drop the pretend face of Christianity and you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And when you do that, you are saved indeed, and you are saved forever. So let's look at these verses. The first two verses we're looking at is verse 4 and 5, and there is a lot in here. For it is impossible in the case of those, not us and we, but those who have once been enlightened and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. And since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it is bearing thorns and thistles, It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be buried, burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Look at how this person is described in just those first two verses. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, 
who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Five incredibly, vitally important aspects that most people would say characterizes the true believer. You notice one thing missing there. You know what's missing there? A relationship with God. These are all things that can be faked, manufactured, emotionally driven, or you just simply go along with the crowd because you don't want to make waves. Look at some of how powerful these things are. It's impossible. Once been enlightened. Having an understanding of right and wrong. Having an understanding that, yeah, there is a God. Having an understanding there is truth behind the historical data regarding the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Having come to a knowledge of those things, and you reject it, deny it. And more than just reject, rejecting and denying it, the person is adamantly opposed to it. The second thing there, who have tasted the heavenly gift. I, uh, I've had times before I was a believer where I was in the context of a church. Uh, in fact, I was raised in a church. I, um, I went through in the Lutheran church all the confirmation, all the classes, I mean, I, I professed before the entire church that I was a believer, uh, and I remember one of the days that I, I think the confirmation day, someone sang the Lord's Prayer. His name was Mr. Fishman, and he's long since passed away, but Mr. Fishman uh, was blind, blind from birth, and I was 12, 13 years old, I remember, uh, at confirmation, and he sang. Uh, he, he sang the Lord's Prayer, and he sang it a cappella. And I have never witnessed in my entire life such an emotional attachment to a song. I cried. Here I am at the front of the church, 13-year-old boy, crying. But that was okay because everyone was crying. It was unbelievably emotional because just previous to that, he had lost his wife of probably 50 years. And yet he wanted to sing the Lord's Prayer for his grandson who was in class with me. I remember that vividly to this day and can almost hear his voice I was emotionally struck, and I cried. It probably was the first time I had cried in seven or eight years. Anyone who would have looked at me would have made the false assumption, wow, God really touched him. His heart must be so tender towards the things of God that he was worshiping in such a pure way, he broke down crying. 
That wasn't true. I was emotionally touched. I wasn't nearer to God or further from God. I was absent from God. And yet something that profound and emotional clicked in me. And I thought, oh, how beautifully he sings the Lord's Prayer. I wasn't even moved to think that should be my prayer. I was just moved emotionally in the moment. The danger is there's a lot of people who believe that if I'm moved in the moment, then I'm spiritually awake to God. That's not true. Being moved spiritually is not the same as having a relationship with God. It's so different. It's so radically different. It's something that accompanies salvation, not emotionalism. People cry at any sound of a song. They can, they can cry in jubilation over their team winning a World Series or, what was the last thing? Super Bowl. Go Rams. That's for you, Lori. We have to be careful and guard ourselves that being emotional over a song or a message or a prayer or something religious, we have to be careful to guard ourselves and not fool ourselves that that's religion, true religion. And I'm safe before God because I cried then, I cried then, I raised my hand then, I prayed then. That's kind of what these verses are hinting at. Doesn't matter if you've been enlightened, doesn't matter if you've tasted the heavenly gifts, doesn't matter if you've shared in the Holy Spirit. Simply, I, I know this sounds, sounds really hard, but if you prayed with someone and you asked them to be healed, and miracle of miracles, they're healed. Don't fool yourself that somehow you're the agent of that healing. You're not. God is the agent of the healing. God heals with or without prayers of his people. He uses prayers in his people to move them to dependence and praise to God for all things, whether they're healed or not. But witnessing that act, participating in that act, does not make you saved. In Matthew chapter 7, absolutely <laughs> terrifying words but we're taking it slowly here. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, this is during Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus. He says this, verse 21 of chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, listen to this, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What did Jesus say was the key there? Not doing stuff, not even healing people, not even casting out demons. I would say that's a big, serious Christian thing, casting out demons. Jesus says that, that's insignificant. That's nothing. In fact, simply that is a work and act of lawlessness. doesn't matter if I prophesied, cast out demons, or did mighty works in your name and performed miracles and people got healed. I, what? Never knew you. Relationship. Jesus says, if you do not have a relationship with me, if you don't know me and I don't know you, if you don't have a connection with the Father, everything you do in the name of Jesus Christ is lawless. But these people that Jesus is speaking of in Matthew chapter 7 had fooled themselves. And on the day of great judgment, they said, oh, whoa, 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 hold it. I think we're in the wrong section. I see all the sheep going off that way and I'm with the goats. But I did this, I did this, I did this. All those people in Hebrews chapter 6, I was enlightened. I was this, I was that. I, w- I, was, I was near to you, I was close to you. I, I, I've tasted the heavenly gift, I've shared in the Holy Spirit. I've tasted in the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age of com- to come. But the Lord's going to look upon them and say, I never knew you. I didn't know you. I mean, I think we'd all be pretty impressed with people casting out demons, doing mighty works in his name. We'd look at that and say, wow, that's that's an incredible fruit and gift that God has given you. But if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, it's deceptive, dangerously deceptive. He goes on to say in verse 6, And then have fallen away, beginning of verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been, da 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 da, da verse 6, And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up for contempt. Ridiculing God is never taken lightly. And that's what happened. Before they had claimed the name of Christ, they had raised their hand, they'd walked the aisle, they cast out demons, they performed mighty works, they had been enlightened, they were excited about God's word, they had ministered to others, they had volunteered, they had given, they had claimed the blood of Christ as their own, but in the end, in their life, they showed themselves not to be of the family of God. And they reject him. The author of Hebrews is as harsh as God is because God is the one who says, if this is how you treat 
that relationship. A laughing stock, mocking it, ridiculing it, rejecting it, denying it, having all the benefits in front of you, and you laugh at it and turn your back and speak against it. There's no other way to salvation. You have rejected the only way to be saved if you ridicule the work of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be saved but through him. And you reject him and ridicule him, turn your back upon him, and then everyone points a finger saying, ah, hypocrite, fallen Christian, I knew that stuff wasn't real. And you bring shame and demeaning, and not demeaning, you bring shame to the name of Christ. Ridicule to the church. He continues in verse 7 and 8. For the land that has drunk rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. See, salvation shows itself genuine perseverance. Now, I I don't like the term and phrase, once saved, always saved, because that all of a sudden kind of means I don't have to do anything. I think the right phrasing is God's people, his saints, will persevere. There will be fruit. There will be evidence, not of doing stuff, but of a relationship with God. They will persevere. When times get tough, they will persevere on that rocky soil. When things start to worry them, they will persevere through that worry because their relationship with God is so strong and rooted and flourishing that without it, just like in the parable of the sower, those that don't produce anything or just grow in thorns and cannot be harvested, they're burned along with the weeds because there's no distinction there. No way to separate them. But God's people are not worthless. They're not cursed. Their end is not burned. But as it says in verse 7, they're for the sake of those who it is cultivated. There's a beauty and bounty and blessing in the fellowship of those saints that we share as his believers, that we share together as his believer. Some quicker growth, some slower growth, some great maturity, some lesser maturity. We're all at different stages, but we're all pushing, pushing and striving and persevering that the relationship that I have with God is strong and vibrant and living today. Not worried about how it was yesterday or how it will be tomorrow, but I'm living greatly for God today. And each day I look at it, I live greatly for God today. Today. That verse 9 should bring some assurance to us. Because verse 9 says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What are the things that belong to salvation? Because these things in verse 4 and 5 are pretty mighty, like fruit, you might say. What accompanies salvation if it's not these things? I already mentioned it. Jesus answered it with one word. No. Do you know him? Does he know you? 
Are you family? Are you friends? Is that family relationship growing and strengthening? You know, just, just because your relationship struggles doesn't mean it's a dead relationship. Right? I mean, every relationship that's worth having has ups and downs. Whether it's marriage or a friendship or being born into a family, it has ups and downs. But part of being family, part of being married and making that covenant and commitment is that it doesn't matter the ups and downs. You're in it to persevere to the end because you've given your word and commitment. And if it was based on my word and commitment, my relationship with God would be in absolute turmoil because I know that I would fail. Let me rephrase that. I know that I have failed. It's not a maybe. It's a certainty. But I know my Savior. And he knows me. I know my Heavenly Father. And he knows me. He knows that I am but weak flesh. He knows that I am tempted. And I fall. He knows it's hard for me to stay on the narrow path. He also knows how to rescue me when I go astray on that wide path. He knows how to change my heart to one of repentance, to one of despair. He knows because we have a relationship that he established, that he maintains, and that he guarantees And so I know I'm not those, them, or they. And I know that I'm a us, we, a your. But some days it's hard to distinguish. And I think for some people, it's not just it's hard to distinguish in a day, but you have made gone weeks, months, years without persevering the way you know you should. How do you change? How do you change that cycle of just wanting to give up? I think there's two things that we can do. Just happens to be part of our take home today. Imagine that. The first is out of uh, Psalm 37. And in Psalm 37, particularly verses 27 to 29. It says this. Turn away from evil and do good, and so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are persevered forever. But his children the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. There's comfort in that. There's comfort in knowing 
I know at least one step I have to do. I have to embrace good and shun evil. I have to be firmly understanding of that relationship I have with God. He is pleased with truth and righteousness and goodness and beauty. He is displeased with hypocrisy, sin, deception, pretending to love him. And those who see that difference and live in that difference, we have great comfort, amazing comfort. We have his promise, his everlasting, absolute promise that he will not forsake us. He will not give up. You may feel like giving up, like this is way too hard, like I did not sign up for this. He never looks at you like that. He always looks to you and at you with absolute <laughs> amazement. Do you know why? Do you know why when he looks at you, he's amazed? Because when he looks at you, he sees not your sin and failings, not your doubt, your fears, anxieties, and apprehensions. He sees Jesus, his son, in perfect righteousness, with sins forgiven. He sees you as if you've never sinned, that you've always been near to him, always been persevering, always in love with him. Because that's how his son is. Always in love with him. Always near him. Always knowing him. And that's how he sees you. He doesn't see you as someone who's played all their cards and they only have one left. He does not see you as a failure. He does not see you as a lost cause. He does not see you as broken. He does not see you as insignificant. He does not see you as something that can be discarded. He sees you as preciously as he sees his own son with absolute conviction and compassion. He loves you. That is comforting. I don't know what else could be more comforting than knowing that God loves you. Right where you're at, loves you because he sees his son. And secondly, besides that great, amazing comfort, he gives us something beautiful in John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch one of them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father 
am one. I had, uh, I've had many people ask me, after a sermon like this, I'll say, uh, Pastor, okay, I, I, I get this, but, but I got a real big question here. How do I really know that I'm saved? How do I really know that I'm one of the sheep and he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. How do I know I'm not the goat or a wolf in sheep's clothing? How do I know I'm not one of those that he says, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness? How do I know I'm not faking it? You see, I asked that same question of a pastor when I pretty much was just in my first year of infancy as a believer. I was terrified that I could slip through his hands, that I'd be the exception, that I'd be the one who's faking it. And I'll never forget the incredible warmth and compassion that man showed me when he laid his hand on my shoulder and said, Tim, I want to tell you something. The fact that you're even asking that question should assure you that your faith is genuine. While it may be immature and in an infant state, or you may have claimed to walk with the Lord for 30 years, but yet you're still struggling with that. His people struggle with that question. He said it is more dangerous to believe you're fine. I got this. Look at all that I do. I'm definitely got it taken care of. I'm definitely fine. He says, Tim, that's the person that I cry for and I pray for. But the one who struggles with that is the one who struggles because they're his child. So if you struggle with that, I want to give you some assurance that the Apostle John was absolutely right in 1 John 5, 13. That these things are written and they pierce our heart and soul because we're his. As the band comes up, I'm going to close this in prayer. And we happen to be singing this last song, The Goodness of God. And I want you to sing it, but at the same time, and I don't know if we can do this, Logan. You can tell me. Can we sing, you sing, the first, like, those first two slide stanzas? And maybe we can sing, let us hear them, and then let's sing it all together. Well, you know the first two things, the first two slides? Okay. If you, yes, if you can, if you can figure any of that out, awesome. Let's stand and close in prayer. Oh, boy. Lord, we are grateful and thankful that even in our weakness, you are glorified. Even in our doubt, you are glorified. Even in our uncertainty, you are glorified. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who is convinced that their stuff, their things, their actions constitute perfection before you, convict them, Father, with these words. Bring them to their knees in repentance and may they cry out, Lord, I need you. 
save me, and may we start a relationship together. In Christ's name, all of God's people said, amen.
really is my desire that God's goodness would be with you this week, that he would overshadow you with his love and kindness and compassion, that you would be strengthened each day knowing that he is your God, that he is your Savior, that he is your friend. I also want to remind you that as you leave, if you've not signed up for that love language class, that you do so. Today's the last day that you can sign up for that. Ask me if you need help, and I'd be very happy to help you sign up for that. Until next week, God bless.